Hello, party people. My party morning people, how we doing? Great, 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 great. My name is Zakia Sutton, she, her, and um, all these amazing folks next to me will introduce themselves in a second. But first, we want to just thank you for spending this precious time with us. We know time is our most valuable resource, so we're honored that you've chosen to share this time with us. Um, how many folks here identify as artists? I'm curious. Nice. And how many folks are affiliated in some way with STEM? Beautiful, 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 beautiful. Well, we hope we get something out of this conversation. We have a lot of cool things to, to discuss. Um, so first, we're just going to start with introducing ourselves and um, what we do. Um, again, my name is Zakia Sutton, she, her, and um, you can go ahead with the slide. Um, I'm an artist activist based in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, my primary medium is music. I'm well-versed in opera, jazz, R&B, um, but I'm most associated with hip-hopra. So I blend opera and, and hip-hop. I'm an opera singer and didn't see myself reflected within the classical music world, so I decided to just create my own lane. So I'm gonna give you all a little taste of my artistry and what it is I do. Um, so hit it, James. <laughs> and I hope you enjoy. As your ears consume this opera mixed with rap, it's hip hop. It's hip hop. It's hip hop. The perfect supplement to this triumphant story of black renaissance and its ascent to glory. Academics like to call it double consciousness. I call it melanin-induced confidence. I call it representing every continent and making sure those asleep are now constant. Not really a rapper, but limits don't occur to me. Graduated first, rip shop university. They trying to figure out which box to put me in. I told them pick anyone and I'll make it bend. Whether in the ghetto or at the symphony. So that's hip hop. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, so as you can see in my work, I embed a lot of social themes that involve what's going on in society and things that I'm very passionate about. Um, so I was honored to be able to engage in my artistry at the Museum of Science. So you can go to the next slide. Oh, yes, you can play that. Um, so I was able to put on a show at the Museum of Science and also engage in a talk with Janae Austin Helt from the Boston Globe um, about the theme of decolonizing museums, which was really cool because what I was able to do was take my music and um, create a story. And I told a story from the perspective of an ancient African artifact um, about 
what it means to have history being um, reappropriated in these different ways and the harm that it causes and how we're able to assert our agency to come out of that. Um, and so, yeah, that's me. Uh, we'll be able to talk more about the different engagements we'd have with the museum as we go, but I'm going to pass it along to our amazing, I'm not going to say your name because I feel like you should be the one to say it, but Anna. <laughs> Hi. Yes. Thanks, Zakia. Yeah. <laughs> that video, I just love. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> um, thank you all. Buenos dias. My name is Ana Tinajero, also known as Masacote. I am a performing arts curator, Afro-Latin dancer, and I engineer spaces for community connection. I am the co-founder of the Hair Story Project. Um, James, we can go into the next slide. My co-collaborator, Yvette Modestine, is not with us today. Unfortunately, she's doing some work with the UN. But I want to say I'm here as a spokesperson and a representative, but my co-collaborator is standing here with me in spirit today and sends her love. So the Hair Story Project, the mission behind it was to highlight that hair is more than just a style for black, Latinx, and indigenous communities. And hair has been policed continuously based on the color of our skin. And so the goal was to highlight the story and the narratives behind the hair through art and storytelling. Originally, this was meant to be a museum exhibit. We were going to place the history in the context of hair including a live production on storytelling, and then COVID happened. So that transitioned into a live film production. We can go into the next slide. For that, we ended up bringing on artists from throughout Boston to tell their hair story through whatever artistic medium was uh, available and most uh, impactful for them, dance, music, art, theater. And this was filmed in venues throughout Boston, as well as on site at the Museum of Science using their green screen technology. That was released in, in the spring of 21 to a live, uh, live stream audience with the Museum of Science and a forward with Senator Ayanna Presley. That ended up getting so many wonderful reviews that we were able to showcase it again at the Omni Theater with an in-person screening and where we also debuted the My Crown Speaks project, which were interviews of community members throughout barbershops in Boston. And since then, the project has been really growing and it's been rebranded to Rerooted. And this summer, uh, we'll be releasing a play at the Museum of Science throughout the summer and uh, continuing into the work on Rerooted and moving forward. So it's been a tremendous opportunity for us and for the Museum of Science to be able to work together to tell some of these undertold stories within our communities. And because I love also to let the art speak for itself, we're gonna play a moment, a small clip from one of the scenes of the film production that we had done. This is a poet and activist, D. Ruff. And uh, we love playing this one specifically because it was filmed on site at the Museum of Science. And also it highlights that many people think the Hair Story Project is about women in hair, but everybody has a hair story to tell and it's an all gender project. So here we go. I began when I was a new father, 22 expectant, too consumed with affection, yet not breaking personal prisons to take my child father. It took years, tears, a new son, suicide attempt, and an upliftment from peers. How powerful my strands became. 
through heartbreak and constant change, weathered the storm when fallacies and reality were rearranged. This is more than a style. This is lineage, legacy route. And don't you dare call them dreadlocks. You better wipe that whitewash from your mouth. This is spiritual. Samson strength and enlightenment, ancient Kemet and Pharaoh, sometimes the links that seem psychic kings, myths, and sheroes. Bob Marley's song and every black ancestor that got called a monster, cause that's how white fear goes. So, <laughs> as my hair grows, so does my experiences with fatherhood and life. That's the scene. This is D-Ruff. And if you want to follow our work, feel free to either follow either of the IG pages and also find us online at rebooted.space. Thank you so much. And I'm going to pass it over to my colleague, Jeannie. Hello, everyone. Good morning. I'm Jeannie Santiago. My pronouns are she, they. I am a queer, indigenous musician, writer, and co-owner of Creatives of Color Boston. Um, and my work with the Museum of Science. Actually, I just wanted to disclose also and ask for your patience. I'm neurodivergent and I also suffered a brain injury a few years ago and so I ask for your patience and understanding as I navigate this space. Um, and so my work with the Museum of Science was really based on connecting um, you know, accessibility and science through my music. Um, I had a beautiful virtual performance during the pandemic with the Museum of Science, and it was very special to me because it was during a time where artists were kind of forgotten during this time. Um, we lost funding, we lost opportunities, um, and so when James reached out to me, I felt so excited to create this new accessible space that I had never really navigated before um, virtually, which I think a lot of us can relate to that. And um, it was beautiful. I got to perform my, my, my album. I got to bring in other artists to perform also. And we had a green screen behind us. And um, I really wanted to push uh, these the Museum of Science's abilities on um, creating images to go with my music. Um, and then it really sparked an idea in me to use their planetarium when we were allowed to, which is a huge dome at the Museum of Science. And I wanted to allow folks to listen to my album um, in a way that felt more immersive and was more accessible to folks with all types of abilities. Um, and so I challenged them to uh, really think about folks who had hearing um, different abilities with hearing, um, seeing, so that you were able to experience my music not just through sound, it was also through movement, it was through these images. Um, and so we were thinking about different ways. I also wanted it to be, to be free. Um, and that allowed folks from different backgrounds to come into the museum. I um, had bomba performances, and so bomba is a traditional Puerto Rican dance um, that the Africans used to communicate with each, other's, with each other, to tell their stories, um, and it's still used today. And so I invited folks to come in, um, into that space, and it was really beautiful to see my people up there, like taking up space in an institution that wasn't always for us, and is still, we're learning to decolonize and have these conversations conversations. And I also had some drag performances here, and that's me in the planetarium. Um, and it took a while to kind of um, create images that really worked with my album, that told the story of my album. Um, but it was such a beautiful night, and 
um, just to have so many different types of people who had never been to the Museum of Science. And the Museum of Science is right in our neighborhood, had never been there, and were able to enjoy that space and take up space there. And so that is the, um, the passion of my work, is to dismantle these institutions, decolonize them, and bring us in there. Because as a child, I walked by the MFA, and there was a Frida Kahlo exhibit. And I've loved her since I was a kid, and my dad told me, we don't go in there. Um, and it still like strikes a nerve to this day because our stories are, are being told in these spaces, but then we're not allowed in these spaces or we don't feel safe in these spaces. So um, that has been my work in this institution and many more. And I'm gonna pass it along to Keith. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Jeannie. Um, first, I just wanna say it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and uh, my name is Keith Maskell. I'm an actor, producer, mental health advocate, um, I always have to say I'm a, a sneakerhead because um, that's part of my story. Um, and I'm also the, uh, the founder of The Triggered Project, which I'll talk about in a second. But um, I always want to start, if we could show the first slide, James, please, is how I got to the Museum of Science. And um, I'm a survivor of sexual abuse. And I'm using my art in three different ways to tell my story, uh, but also bring awareness uh, but also make change. And so uh, this shot right here is of me at the uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which I'm a luminary for. And um, this is me in the, in the famous frame uh, in the Dutch room that was, uh, the painting that was in it was a Rembrandt. And the reason why people know about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is because there was a heist in the 1980s and where they stole paintings and they don't know who did it. Um, and so I was commissioned to take, pick a piece from the collection and I chose this empty frame that they had on the wall um, to make the analogy that as an artist and a survivor that my abusers, uh, that sometimes I feel like an empty frame and that they stole my art when I get triggered and it, my art leaves me and then I have to build myself back up again to continue to move on. But also make the analogy that um, there's a lot of stolen history um, in museums. Um, and that's an important, that's an important context, especially because there's only uh, a small, uh, small African uh, person, probably about this big. Um, so I am the first um, to actually now be part of the collection. And that uh, being able to tell my story in that way is what uh, what got me to uh, the Museum of Science, and so I always start with 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 that context. Um, and so I am uh, the founder of the Triggered Project, where we are shattering the silence and nurturing the healing of uh, Black and Brown male survivors with the use of art. And so I have uh, a one man show that's called Triggered Life um, that we started at a stage show and now is a motion picture, live stage hybrid version uh, that we've been using to um, change how providers, especially looking at social workers, learn about black and brown families and looking at black men and trauma. Um, so uh, we've been able to use, uh, use that um, in a really incredible way uh, to be in these high ed institutions um, as folks go into the field. Um, but uh, what else we do also is I have, uh, if you go to the next slide, please, um, which is our podcast, which is called Living a Triggered Life, 
where um, we have a partnership with the Museum of Science. And um, I've been in this beautiful long-term relationship um, you know, with my partner, Roxanne, and we're talking about what it's like to be in our marriage and have trauma histories and, and how we figure it out. Um, so it's not always completely heavy. There's a lot of jokes. It's really fun. But people are like, well, why the Museum of Science, right? Because the social science is important, right? The neural arts is, are important. And let's be 100% honest. If there's not black and brown folks walking through museums in the next 10 years, they will die. Yeah. Old money and those older folks that have been the gatekeepers are going away. That's the truth. There's a reason why folks are trying to affect law right now. There's a reason why they're trying to do it. Because all the people with all the money are all dying because they're all old. And there's no one else coming behind. And so that's why it's a pleasure to be here uh, with, with these great artists and also with James being able to open the store because um, it's not a welcoming space always for black and brown folks and, and for different people. And having real conversations about the social science, the other part of the science, is just as important as the traditional science. Um, and so that's a little bit about my work. Um, and I am, uh, I'm honored to be here. And I'm unapologetic about my story. Um, and uh, that's all I got. Thank you. Hi, well, also welcome everybody who's come into the door a little bit later. We were just introducing the projects a little bit. Thank you for that, Keith. Um, we're going to transition into a little bit of a fireside chat and in a moment also open up to Q&A. So um, one of the things that I actually wanted to ask you, Keith, you talk about this partnership and how important it is to work with STEM and to bring this conversation into our spaces. And you've actually worked with a lot of other organizations and created other partnerships. And I'm curious because at the moment, as we talk about needing to have black and brown people in our spaces, a lot of organizations are starting to do this as a form of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And these have become big buzzwords in the industry. But that's also backfired when it becomes performative within the community. So I'm curious if you're be willing to share with us what has made this particular relationship with the Museum of Science so authentically successful in past and present? Yeah, thank you so much for that, that question. I think that's important because the, the DEI jobs, you know, like a lot of people got hired, but those are the first ones that are being cut. Pay attention to that, right? There's a lot of reshuffling that's happened. And I think, to be honest with you, I think, um, you know, being able to talk to James um, has made it, has made the relationship special, to be honest, to be able to have difficult conversations. The fact that, um, that he was so open and not, and not a gatekeeper, so to speak. Who's um, James? And, um, you know, giving us the opportunity to control our narrative. And I think that's, what, that's what's been great. We've done three live podcasts already. Our first guest was Jeannie Mai Jenkins from The Real. Um, the second was Ayanna Presley. And for us, who has, you know, 19 episodes, um, soon to be 20, starting a second season, for us to be able to go into an institution and have those type of guests is second to none. Um, there are not many podcasts that are done in museums. Um, and with the topic that we're talking about, 
um, have those type of guests. And so um, that's what's made it, that's what's made the relationship special. But I'd be, like I said, being able to have difficult conversations, um, which James and I have had, um, and that there's a certain, there's a mutual respect that's there. And um, I feel it. And I feel like that is authentic. And when it, I don't feel like it is, I can have the conversation. Thank you for that. And just in case people don't know, James <laughs> is our director of public programming at the Museum of Science, trying to hide in the corner over there. But amazing human and someone that we've all been so fortunate to be able to work with. I'm curious, would anybody else like to answer that question? Um, so I, as Keith was saying, that DEI was definitely something that institutions that felt created and corporations in this panic of when they just realized that race was real um, and that things that they were doing were problematic. So they wanted to create these DEI community engagement um, positions. And now that things, you know, the pandemic seems to be over for some folks and, uh, you know, the problematic things are not really showing up on the news as much. This this guilt that was there, I think, has dissipated a bit. And so now there doesn't seem to be a, as much need for DEI and community engagement work. But really, um, it does. <laughs> We've been talking about this for, for generations. Um, it's just that now people are starting to listen, and now maybe they're stopping that. Um, and so DEI work is extremely important. Um, it, but you have to be very authentic in the way that you go about this work. It's not tokenizing folks. Um, it's not hiring BIPOC folks to do this work and then traumatizing them over and over and over with your microaggressions, with your um, employee standards that are in place that are extremely harmful to folks. Um, and James, um, is this buffer for us? Um, there is a distrust when we go into these institutions and they want to work with us as artists. Um, it feels like they want to exploit us, to tokenize us. Um, these, re these relationships need to be reciprocal. They are just not a one-off. You're not just going to use this for our work, pay us, and then that's it. Your work is done and you feel like a good person now because you did it. Mm -hmm. um, and James will literally sit with you and say, what do you want to do? What do you need? It's listening. Listening is very, very important and it's simple. And you need to listen to what artists need. You need to listen to what folks need. We've been saying it for generations, y'all. So um, the information is there. You just got to educate yourself a little bit, reach a little bit. And James is this buffer for us. When I said that I needed um, gender-neutral bathrooms, he made it happen. They put up these nice, fancy plaques for the day, and I'd like to see those again permanently. Um, he put those up for the day, um, you know, created accessibility for folks with different abilities. We made it free. Um, going to these institutions is not always um, in people's disposable income. And so it was important that my event was free. Um, and, you know, creating those reciprocal relationships, I think, is what makes it authentic. Um, and really listening to folks. I think th these are things that you could write down and take with you as tools. Because when I've been going to these panels, I'm like, I want to leave with like tools and resources and like how-tos and, yeah. you know, listening and creating reciprocal relationships. Um, yeah, that's what I think is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. Um, but does anyone else have anything to say about that or? Okay. Um, I'd like to ask the question that really goes into um, decolonizing cultural institutions, which is, which is something I think that all of us are really passionate about. And when we're having public programs like 
you know, music and the Trigger Project and the Hairstory um, Project. Um, it's really creating conversations, authentic conversations around the need for decolonizing cultural institutions and um, really getting folks who are internal too to really look at themselves and decolonizing themselves. And so I wanted to ask Anna first um, how your work has helped kind of like create these conversations around decolonizing cultural institutions. Thank you for that, Jeannie. Um, wow. <laughs> well, I look at it kind of like thinking about the difference between inclusion and belonging. When we think of inclusion, you're opening up your space. And you might decorate it a certain way. You might put up a Frida exhibit. Um, but that doesn't mean that the community is going to come in through the doors and feel like that's their space or like they want to be in there. So to curate a place of belonging, you've got to also bring people in the room that will make the conversation with you. And so public programming is a very accessible way to do this. I want to mention that we think a lot about this essence of public programming or muse being a part of museum exhibits in a way that we forget that exhibitions take a year or longer to create. But there's a lot of conversations and things that are coming up in the community that need to be addressed. And it reminds me of this time that there was an issue in 2019 with one of the museums in Boston. They had a class field trip that came in through the door, and it was a lot of black and brown kids that came into the museum space, and they felt a lot of racist interactions and discrimination while they were in the space. So this became a really big issue within the community. And what they ended up doing is trying to change the narrative around them. So they went into different communities to try to create public programming in the space. They went to the Latinx community. They approached me as an arts consultant if I could create a production in the space. And I had to ask them, are you ready to speak to this conversation? because you've been avoiding it with the lawyers. Are you allowing me to do this production because it's the only way that I'll come in and address this conversation? And they were open to it. And they held their first Latinx, the first Hispanic heritage event at that time, unbelievably, in this really big museum space. And it was wonderful. They had all, they had a, a number of signers from the Latinx community to come in and become patrons. And then they didn't continue it. Mm. So they lost all of them. And so that goes back into, you can create a space that's working to decolonize this, but you've got to continue the relationship and it cannot be performative in nature if you're going to do that or you risk harming and going against the community. So public programming is one of many tools, but it's a very, very, very accessible tool for creating belonging in our spaces. Thank you so much. I love what you said about um, this one-off, right? Like you were saying, like reciprocal relationships, being authentic. Zakia, would you like to answer that? Please? Yeah, um, that is so important. And I swear when we keep bringing up James, it's not just because, but it's just like this is something James has done very, very well in terms of being able to ask us what we want to do. Because for me, public programming, a lot of it is about agency, right? Making sure that the community has the ability to speak to itself. And when we think about institutions such as museums, what's so hard is that 
they have this level of legitimacy that they offer within within the culture, right? Like you think that, oh, everything that comes out of there is is accurate and represents what's important, what, what stories are important to tell. Um, and so there's this barrier here that doesn't really allow the public to be able to be seen and be able to be truly represented in how we actually are today. And so through public programming, particularly public programming that the public is allowed to have ownership over, I, I should specify that, um, it allows the community to have agency over their own stories. And in that, the, the unspoken thing that I think um, is within that, particularly within the context of a, of a science museum, is that we get to see that science is for everyone, right? It's not something that you have to do when you have your goggles on and, you know, your fancy scientific clothes or anything like that. It's something that we're all engaging in all of the time. Um, you don't have to be into a specific avenue to be into science. And so um, I think there's real power in being able to have agency over your stories. I've personally been in relationship with certain institutions who wanted to um, have diversity and equity inclusion. And here's the black girl who sings opera. That's perfect for our checkbox. And then when I get there, I realize there are all these stipulations about what I'm supposed to perform, how I'm supposed to do it. And um, you know, we have this certain audience, and we have to cater to this audience. And so we have certain rules about how you do your pro public programming. So then it's not really changing anything, and it's not really true representation, right? Because now you're telling me my voice is silenced. Um, ooh, I just got mm, triggered with that one. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think public programming is about making sure that the, the people that you're engaging with in your institutions have ownership over their own stories. So that even if, especially if you're dealing with an institution, an old institution, chances are there are a lot of problematic things that have to be undone. Um, and that takes a long time. So public programming is a great avenue for making sure that the public has the opportunity to kind of narrow that gap and tell that their own stories. Yeah. Thank you so much. I think that kind of segues into um, our next question, if you wanted to leave. Yes, that. yes. Um, so I'm curious about why the arts in particular and why artists are... Um, such a useful tool for this partnership, particularly with the Museum of Science, and what it tells us about the intersections between the arts and sciences. So, yeah, Anna, if you want to take it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a science girl, so I started in electrical engineering and computer science, and when I shifted into business because I wanted to start a dance company. My professors would always ask, I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't get this transition. And let alone asking them to help on my business plan. That was a, dif a different story. But <laughs> basically, the, the idea was for me is that science is always a study of the world around us. Mm -hmm. And movement is its own exploration and study of the world around us. And how we interact in our spaces and how we move in our spaces is so important. And art in general, we're always studying the world. And science as an exploration needs that visual and needs that understanding of how to have a language to talk with community. Art is one powerful medium to be able to do this. And I believe that 
we put it to the backside more, but if you can use art as a form of your work, then you're actually going to have a much better impact on the work that you're trying to do and a much better relationship with the community as you bring it forward. Mm. So. Yes. Um, do you mind if I comment real quick? Um, I did want to say also that most folks who are artists or creative folks are, neuro are part of the neuro neurodivergent community. And so when we're just focusing on STEM, that can leave a lot of us out. Um, the way that these subjects are taught um, don't really appeal to such neurodiverse folks and through artist community. So I feel like when you're not including art in the conversations, you're not including our history because art, literature, music, that's what you really go to when you learn about societies during a historical period throughout the times. And so you're leaving folks out when you're not including us in these conversations. Um, you're limiting our potential to be a part of the science, the sciences, the engineering, all of that. Um, and so I think like really including us, make it steam. I'm copywriting that. Don't nobody leave here with that. Um, and so let's conclude art in these conversations. But um, Keith, if you wanted to answer that also. Yeah, thank you. Um, and actually, the A was in there first. Oh, I did not know. The A Just was, yeah. Yes, the A was in there, and then it, and then they got rid of it. Um, but the intersectionality, I mean, it's my dad was an electronic engineer, right? Worked for Draper Labs in, in Massachusetts. And um, as I got older, and me growing up and being an artist, um, there was a, our minds met around creating things. Right? Him being able to take apart a TV and put it back together. There was an artistry in how he did that. Right? The way he created the boards for, um, for the projects that he worked for, that he soldered together, he had to make a plan to do that. And that's art. And I got to really appreciate for the artist in him as an engineer. And so that got me to think differently about, about science. And the social science aspect is important for kids to think about as they create. And an engineer and an artist are not that far apart in terms of how we think, um, because that is part of me as an artist and how I think about my projects and how I think of how I want to collaborate. So it only made sense when, you know, talking to James about doing something at the Museum of Science and I wanted to do a podcast uh, talking about mental health. Through the conversation, there was an exhibit on mental health in the museum, mm -hmm. which I think is important. And we have to think differently about the A. We have to think differently about how to use the art as the catalyst for talking about science. It's a bridge to the conversation. And um, that's why I'm excited to be involved in this because um, this is the wave of the future. This is what has been happening in other spaces. We have just um, have the, um, the unique ability to be here to be able to talk about it. Um, but getting kids, younger kids, to be excited about science, all sciences, gives them the ability to work both sides of their brain. And I think that's incredibly important. And even as adults, we've got to start thinking about it differently. It's not about what we've been told. Yeah. Right? It's not about what we've been told. It's about how we can free up our mind to think differently about what can be done and what is possible. 
right? I say this all I say this all the time. We do have the ability as we grow into adults to figure out what type of people we want to be. It's not about what we learned, it's not about our environment, it's not about any of that stuff because it comes to a point where we have to make a decision. And it is a choice for us to be how we are. And I try to make the choice, you know, to collaborate and to bring excitement around mental health um, and self-care and know that that is sometimes even the most important science. Mm -hmm. So um, I wanted to say that. And, uh, you know, I have a a question as well is, you know, um, with what you were saying about how people look at the Museum of Science, you know, what are your, what are the folks in your communities are saying? What are your friends, what are their reactions to your work, one, at the museum? And also the fact that you are, are actually collaborating and in a museum. Because I know even for me, a lot of people are really, are really th- they're, they're flabbergasted. They're like, how did you get into a museum? Like, this is unbelievable. 90, 99% of the podcasts that are out there that have a million followers are not collaborating with museums. Um, but folks are really excited when they come in and have a DJ um, playing and this music, and we pretty much have taken it over, and then we're having these real conversations about mental health and self-care, so, yeah. Um, so I think first is, is, like, how did you, how did you get your album, like, release party at the museum? Like, what, is, what does that have to do with science? What does your music have to do with science? And my music is sociopolitical, it's sensual, it's based around the QT BIPOC wellness community um, and advocating for that and creating accessibility, which I think all of these things are science. And when I was like, oh, STEAM, like, I'm mad I didn't know that, because I was one of those kids that was left behind and not included in these conversations because I didn't have an interest in science or math. It's not something that I felt like was taught to me in a way that I could grasp onto and be excited about. And so I was more, I was the theater kid. I was the one that was in the art classes. I was the one advocating for music. But um, another conversation I think that is happening right now in terms of like an audience response and community response is that I don't know about here, but in Massachusetts, we're losing artist spaces. Um, It is a very, um, a community that really values STEM, (laughs) it values um, corporations, um, tech, medical, you know, education, but um, the arts community is being kicked out. A lot of us are moving to different states um, where the arts is more valued. Um, they are giving us grants, but we're like, what are we supposed to do with these grants? Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing to, like, there's no spaces. And so the Museum of Science is this huge, powerful institution that has the funding to get to allow us to use spaces. And so the community is talking about that right now is, you know, how can these, these big, I don't want to say monsters because Museum of Science is not that, but these cultural institutions that are taking up so much of funding and so much space, like how can you open your doors to us um, and be more inclusive and create a, and have us in these conversations? And you know, when they're having exhibitions that are based around indigenous folks, African, other BIPOC communities, it's bringing us in there and then paying us for these consultations, for these conversations, and not just having white folks creating an indigenous exhibition, like that doesn't make sense. Um, if you're going to have us represented in these spaces, then we need to be included in these conversations. We need to be included in these spaces. Um, And so that's what the community has been talking about, Um, my audience members have been talking about, is taking up space and, um, you know, so this developments that are happening and gentrification that is happening are, are kicking us out. And so if you want us to stay, then please make space for us, you know, because we're exhausted from 
forcing ourselves into these spaces, right? Or getting these one-offs and not these reciprocal relationships that we deserve. And so that's what the audience community has been saying. But um, Zakia or Ana, if you had anything to say. Yeah, um, I've had similar responses. People being like, the science museum? Are you sure? How did how did that happen? Or or why is that happening? <laughs> or 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 my favorite one isn't that museum for kids? You know, <laughs> um, because I guess at a certain age you just don't do science anymore unless you're a scientist, right? Um, yeah, I think you know the interesting thing, um, and this is kind of going back to what Keith said earlier about the the intersections between the arts and sciences sciences. Um, one thing that I've been interested in exploring is that you know science helps us better understand the world that we live in, and then arts gives us permission to ex explore what could happen next, right? Um, and so I saw an opportunity there when I was invited to perform to kind of lean into that. And when I was a kid, I was never really into the sciences very much, um, and I felt like the sciences weren't for me, but then something did shift a bit in high school. I went to a performing arts high school. And so the value was already understood that arts are in everything, right? And so I remember having this science class where we had to understand physics, right? And we were going to put on a performance using physics in various ways, how we do the lighting and everything like that. And I was just like, wow, I, it never even occurred to me that I'm doing science every day. <laughs> um, and so when I got the opportunity to, to perform at the Museum of Science, I was like, okay, how can I leverage my music in a way that brings up discussions about science in various ways, right? And so when people came up to me after the show, it was kind of like, oh, I never really thought about how connected these two things actually are. They're not different at all, right? Um, and that kind of gives us permission to be able to get away from these, the siloing that I don't know about here, but in, in Massachusetts, it's a huge issue. Like Jeannie said, artists not having spaces, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that everything is siloed. Artists are supposed to be here. Science is supposed to be here. And I think being, under, being able to understand that these aren't spaces for specific things, right? They can be made into whatever we want them to be. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and um, yeah, so I think the response has been what? But then it's been, yeah. <laughs> that that has been my experience. Um, I don't know how we're doing for time, but we're good. Um, do we want to make some time for questions? Yeah. We yeah. asked if you do have questions to come up to the microphone here so that we can hear you. Um, and if you have like a direct question for any one of us, any curiosities or um, anything you'd like to share, that'd be really great. Yeah. Or comments. Or comments, yeah. Don't be shy, y'all. Well. Look, this Don't is a small group community. Let's go. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Always gonna keep talking. Put on a little, I, I, a I might get this wrong, but I, I've been educated that um, colonial culture, everybody knows. Like, everybody knows white culture. And that everybody comes to the table with their own culture. And, you know, how have you been able to set expectations with, you know, kind of, Making sure that everybody feels comfortable in a, in that blended culture, um, in like, I, 
in the science museum. You'd made some comments about like, hey, you know, people are, you know, it's not my place. I, you know, people don't go in there. And is that like a culture thing? Is it a socioeconomic thing? Is it, and how do you bridge that divide to make sure that everybody feels comfortable and knows the expectations coming in? Well, I think that when we've been taught that white people don't want us in these spaces, right? That we can't afford to go in these spaces, that they don't want us here. Um, and you're right that when you think of history, it, especially in the United States, it starts with when this was established in 1629, and we went on a, tour, a little tour here too, my partner and I, and it started with that. And I was like, well, what about the indigenous people that were here? What about you know the black people that were here? Like, where's that history? And so um, we've been conditioned that we don't belong in these spaces, places where white identifying folks um, just take up space wherever they want. They don't have to worry about this idea that maybe you're not welcome here. You know, um, and so I think it's, it's with that, it's just like including us in those conversations, public programming is the way to do that because they see us in these spaces, they see how happy we, happy we are in these spaces and that we are making changes, that's gonna invite folks in. I, if I may speak on that too, th Ron, uh, thank you. I, it reminds me a little bit, the other day my sister was doing homework with my niece, my seven-year-old niece, and uh, she, of course, didn't want to do her homework, but she sat her down, she had her do it. And it made me think back of my childhood. My parents are immigrants. And mom, mommy always said, I can't help you with your homework. I don't know how to help you with your homework, but I will take you to school, I will take you to wherever you need to do, you have to be in charge of your own thing. And so I lived my life that way. We all lived our life figuring our way along. And when I was in second grade, one of those times, one of our art projects ended up in a museum. It was my first time in a museum. And I, was, I felt so out of place as a kid, not understanding what this was, but really excited that my artwork was on the wall of this institution, of this, of this space. I didn't understand the magnitude of it. And I didn't step into a museum again until I was in high school just because I didn't understand it. I didn't know. And it wasn't like, this is not my space. I'm too young to understand that. But I, my, I didn't have, in that case, people who would help me understand that this is also for me. And so sometimes it's not even a matter of us being told it's not that. Sometimes it's just a matter of not knowing and being able to host a space where you can tell people, hey, this is for everybody that makes people feel like it starts to open up the conversation. Can I add one quick thing? I know that we have a line, but um, I also had the opportunity to do some equity consulting with the Mu Museum of Science and experience some of the public programming and try to figure out um, how can we approve this through an equity lens, right? And so with the various people who were um, employees at the Museum of Science, one conversation that we had to have is what assumptions are you making about the people that enter into your space? Because whatever assumptions you're making inform who's going to be comfortable, right? Um, so I think being able to sit with your team and ask that question and be able to process that can also help to, to make sure it's more inclusive and has a, a sense of belonging. Yeah, I'll answer the question really quickly. People, because of the fact that, um, you know, being that, you know, we're a black couple and whatever people ask, like, is this for me, right? You're talking about sexual abuse and whatever, but it seems like you're only focusing on, on black and brown folks. People have asked that question. Is this, you know, as a white person, is this for me? And I just answer very quickly, trauma has, trauma has no color. In a basic way. Um, and my story, the story about trauma, the story about mental health is universal. 
And so we all can take, we all, when, when there's someone who's a storyteller, we, always, we all can take something from it. And so um, being unapologetic about that, that we learn and relearn every day, which is something that, 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 that I live by, um, has seemed to help. And um, love your shoes. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, good morning. Uh, my name is Natalia. I come from Brazil. Thank you for the talk. And I'm curious about your research process. I work with research in Brazil. And then you're mentioning how to create art and make it more inclusive and accessible. And I'm very curious to know best practices or examples in terms of how you do your own research, how you learn about the things that you are creating or the people that you are involved with to get some inspiration from your processes. Thank you. I think that's something that we can all relate to is that we are a part of our community, our arts community. Uh, we are all artists. Um, and so I think our, our lived experience is the first. And I think we underestimate our lived experience and we don't give our lived experience enough credit. Um, you know, a lot of times when BIPOC folks go into universities, we're being taught through the white lens, you know, and really like um, downing, uh, downplaying our lived experience and how we already have these tools and we already have these, um, you know, this knowledge. And so we kind of have to sit through these um, to these universities, these classes, and kind of like absorb this information just to get the diploma, just to get all that, and then to unlearn it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I was thinking about what you were saying about um, colonial history, and even our own history has been through the white lens, has been taught through the white lens. When you're going up and digging up our, our ancestors and digging up our, you know, our temples and our sacred artifacts, um, that's through the white lens, not ours. But I, for me personally, it's my lived experience. My lived experience is just so valuable. Um, it's what I need. I listen to my community. I'm always in conversation with all of these people, actually. Um, and so for me, that is my research. Don't read a bunch of books and then not engage with the people. Because you have to be able to humanize the people that you're, you want to work with, right? Um, hello, everyone. I'm Jessica. Thank you so much for this morning's panel. Um, I'm an emerging museum professional, so I was really um, inspired to hear all of your stories. Um, could you speak on your impact that you've seen of your work in the community and like how it shows up and maybe possibly influencing other museums or cultural institutions? Yeah, um, I'll take that. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you for that question. Um, I think it, it's hard in some ways for, um, it's hard some ways to see, you know, take impact uh, as likes and follows, but being able to be somewhere um, and have someone talk about uh, watching an interview, uh, watching one of our lives that are up on YouTube and, and tell me how it affected them is everything. Right? One to say, wow, I didn't think about social, I didn't think about science in this way is number one. Two, with thank you for telling your story, um, which is incredibly important, but also it opened me up in a different way to more, want to have more real conversations with the person that I'm in relations with. Yeah. And so that tells me what the, that tells me the impact. Right? People saying thank you, yes, for doing it. Um, and there's more folks talking about mental health. There's more people wanting to go to other programming at the Museum of Science that have told me, that are like, wow, you know, now I'm looking and seeing what the whole season looks like and making it um, 
and passing the word around and trying to make it more accessible for other people who had no idea that the museum was doing, was doing this. Um, and now other, you know, other, inst other institutions and other um, you know, places in Boston are now looking to try, I don't know if y'all getting the calls, but I'm getting different calls now because they know that we've had successful events um, at the museum. Thank you, Keith. <laughs> um, I want to, I, I guess my main thing is we think a lot about impact in this sense of how many people are we impacting, but sometimes you also have to think about the quality of what you're doing. And so in that, I know there's a statistical line that you have to run between how is your, how much is your money going? How far is that going? But after this, uh, debut of the Hair Story Project, we had schools contacting us that they wanted us to go to their school and talk. We had kids that had, for the first time, had this conversation with their parents about what does my hair mean? Um, as an Afro-Latina, sometimes you don't, you don't know if you can say you're black, to be very honest. And so then you start having conversations around what does that mean for you? What do, let's have the race conversation, right? Even in the Latino community, it's important. And so you had a lot of this that was happening after. And then once we had the in-person conversations, I had some of the community coming up to, well, we had some of the community coming up to us and saying they'd never stepped foot in a museum. And that's powerful to be able to say that someone because of your program, I was able to step in, and it was very impactful for us to be able to do that and say, hey, no, this is our space too, and we've got to find a way to make sure that our stories are being told in this, in this institution just as much. So, uh, yeah, for me, it's more of an understanding that it's not, it's, you have an impact in communities and in organizations contacting you, but there's also the micro lens of understanding how is it impacting the one person in the community, my, my sister, my niece, you know, the, the, the little girl, the little boy that needs to hear this as well. Yeah, I'll just answer really quickly that um, I think one impact that I noticed from my engagement with the museum is that people who weren't really going to the Museum of Science suddenly were exposed to all these things and didn't realize the programming that was happening there. I was like, okay, now I'm gonna take a visit. Um, and that is very powerful. Um, but one thing I will also say in in my truth, and, and, and this is not to be negative, Nancy, um, I wish I did see more impact with other institutions who were willing to engage in these conversations. I've had other institutions who were interested in my artistry in a general sense, but with my show being so tied to decolonizing museums, I think there was a little fear there in terms of <laughs> engaging in that conversation. I think that's, um, that's pretty telling as well. So I'm not sure, honestly, that on an institutional lens, I saw the same impact of, okay, we're ready to engage in that conversation as well. Because what I've noticed is that a lot of larger institutions have other incentives behind um, why they're doing what they do. So I just I had to add that nugget in there. <laughs> And also just to notice, I think that the museum did lose some patrons even in the process, and I think it's important to say that Bye. you have to be ready to take the risk as well. Go hard or go home. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. I hate asking questions, but you all are so wonderful, and I really loved seeing some of your work. My question is kind of about the inverse. Uh, I curate a monthly event series for creatives in Portland, Oregon, which is historically a 
very white space. And even still demographically, that's the majority of the population. Um, so I'm really upfront with the folks that I ask if they want to speak uh, about who the audience probably is and the most people who show up in these spaces. And the reason I say it's inverse is like I pop up in different spaces and I find areas that you know will host and that we can take creators into that they probably were not historically welcomed into, especially as you know the artist or the performer. Um, so I'm you know I never want to take someone into a space they're uncomfortable or don't feel welcome. Uh, and I try to do all of the work for them for all the logistics, which it sounds like you all have had a really wonderful ally in that way. Um, but I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for kind of what else to do as far as uh, like what audience to expect or how to encourage a diverse audience to come check things out. Uh, it's the, kind of two I, things. I, can, um, I was doing yep. DEI work at an institution that... Um, you know, was wanting to make their, uh, their audience and their stage more diverse. But I think that that goes back to reciprocal and authentic relationships. Like, what is, what is really your, um, your purpose or your drive to bring these folks in? Is it because you are at risk for, you know, shutting down, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think, like, really being open about the problematic things that are happening in your institution um, and... Um, literally listening to what the artists want to do in that space, but I know we're running on time, so. Yeah, um, I've had this challenge come up a lot in the various organizations I, I've worked with. Most of my equity consulting is with arts organizations, and there's this common theme of, well, our audience is currently this, and oftentimes it's like older and white, um, particularly within um, theater organizations as well. And, um, one thing to what Jeannie says is that building authentic relationships is important and it takes time, but also you have to be willing to meet people where they are. And so sometimes that could mean engaging in community partnerships with other arts organizations that have those demographics that you're trying to reach, right? And that way it's not about trying to take um, these BIPOC folk in the space where they might not feel comfortable, but it's about being able to um, make sure that they're already in the space that they're uncomfortable and finding a way to engage them that way. That could be very powerful as well. Yeah, I will say really quickly, um, Let's Talk Offline um, spends a lot of time and still have connections to PDX. I developed my motion picture, live stage hybrid version um, in the King neighborhood at Portland Playhouse. And so I understand exactly what you're saying around it. So let's talk offline about, and I can tell you about how we've built um, our great relationships with folks in PDX, um, that's uh, been long going. So let's, let's talk about that. I appreciate that. Thanks. And we are here to Go speak Blazers. a little, like a little bit after. And, um, you know, if you want to exchange information with us, um, you know, we'd be happy to do that. James, oh, do we take one last question? Is that okay? I'm so sorry. I'm just like, that's ah. okay. That's all right. That's good. Um, <clears throat> my name is David. I'm the director of a, of a state arts agency. <clears throat> Some of you I think no Michael Bobbitt, yes. basically, oh, right? Yes, yes, yes. Right. very good, well-dressed gentleman. Yes. Okay, so, yeah, the, he is a very well-dressed gentleman. And he's, he's my counterpart in Massachusetts, basically. Nice. So he and I do the same, I, I do it in a southern state, South Carolina, he does it in Massachusetts. You talked a little bit about funding actually being available for artists, and but losing spaces for artists. And I'm sitting here in that similar situation as Michael is thinking, well, what can we do to help overcome those barriers to spaces and places or is it a funding, access to funding or 
um, capacity to sort of deal with grants? And can you talk with me a little bit? Has that has it improved over time, or you know, just your Y'all don't mind, Experience. I can speak to that a little bit. I actually worked with Michael Bobbitt as a BIPOC outreach coordinator with the Mass Cultural Organization as well. And uh, one of the big things that we were working on was instituting in some of the grants that were coming out racial equity points so that you're giving points to, have you not had a grant in the past? Um, where, what part of the community are you in? Are you in an outlying community? Things like this. So we were given certain point systems. I'm sure you know about this. Um, but one of the big things that we were also talking about was um, really hounding people on sharing resources. So it's not just about giving people the grant, but about giving them the ability to continue to fund themselves and so giving them the resources so that they have access to all these other organizations that are able to keep their work moving forward. And I know we have to wrap up, so. I just want to say as someone who receives grants and as an artist in Massachusetts, um, I think it's uh, not, it's the application process also, making it more accessible to folks and not having us relive our trauma in order to get that money and those funds. Um, it's like the sadder your story, the better chance, yes, we want to, we want to, you know, we want to fund you, we want your name on our stuff. Um, I think that that is truly important, um, the accessibility of the applications. And also looking at your budget and including public programming in your budget. So if you're giving someone an $80,000 grant, I mean, budget, and it's one person, and which was me also in, when I was working in cultural, cultural institutions, like I, want, I would get a lot of pushback when I wanted to include um, artist programming, adult programming in my budget. And then my budget at the end of the year, I didn't use it. Well, that sounds like a waste. <laughs> All institutions need artists. So if they begin to understand that, this issue with like spaces and such like that will be become much easier to, to deal with, to address. Yeah, let's talk after. I have a couple things. I think that'll be really helpful. Thank you all. Thank you, all thank so, you much. All so much. Thank you so much.